My name is Greg Kudrowski, and this is my podcast, Theology 101. Now, I'm not a pastor. I'm just a normal guy, and this is just me talking about my personal Bible studies. If you want to know more about me, well, visit my website, theology101.net. And if you want to hear more about the Bible, stick around. Hey, everybody, this is a bit of a midweek special. I am on vacation this week. I am preaching at a Bible conference in Medellin, Colombia, down in South America. And one of the messages I am preaching down there is a message about Ichabod, um, the glory is departed back in 1 Samuel. This message was something that I preached a while back. It was uh, one of those things that kind of popped up in my uh, quiet time in the morning, and so it's not real doctrinal, it's real kind of inspirational, and, and it's kind of, I think it's a good message, very uh, very needed, I think, for the modern church today. I think it's very pointed in some of its application for some of the things that we see going on in, in churches today that probably shouldn't be, and so I am throwing this up there on the podcast as a midweek special, just in case you want to download it and listen to it. And then also to ask you to pray for us, um, we're I'm going to be preaching uh, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, and then Sunday down with Fernando Garrido in La Biblia Dice Church of Medellin, Colombia. And I will try and put up a, a link in the podcast uh, notes for his uh, YouTube channel. So I don't know if they're going to put the stuff up on YouTube, but whatever. Maybe you could pray for us and ask the Lord to do his good and perfect work through the preaching of the Word of God. May Jesus Christ have all of the glory, and may, be, may it be pleasing unto God, uh, the preaching of the Word. So um, here it is, Ichabod. I want to start out with this. I had a, I had a run-in yesterday at work um, with a Mormon, two Mormons actually, and I wrote Dave, and I told, I told Dave, I said, I said, man, I said, I ran into a couple of Mormons um, and, in my job, and they were, they were the most polite, courteous, clean. Um, I mean, they were just, they, the shirt was pressed out, and their hair was cut neat, and they were clean shaven, and they were, I mean, just crazy. They don't, people don't do that today, right? And so I wrote Dave, and we were going back and forth, and I told him what had happened, and, and we kind of giggled about it, you know, and I, and I, and I made it some offhanded comment that that's, you know, they're, they're so clean and nice and, 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 and nice and neat that it seems just demonic. <laughs> right? Well, then I got to thinking, now, now here's, here's, the, here's the problem. Here's the problem. Where's the power to save? Salvation for us in our dispensation today is new life. We're born again. Now, Jesus told, told the parable of the sower. We can apply that today. The seed is the word of God that we preach, the word of the, the gospel. Okay? The sower goes out and he sows seed, right? He sows some among the thorns and some among the rocks and some on good soil and some I don't know where else. Okay, so we've got four types of soil. Well, some of the seed gives new life and some of it doesn't. The power to save, where is it? Is it in the seed? Or is it in the sower? Okay, this is an easy one. You don't have to work and worry. I'm not, I'm not tricking you. It's in the seed, right? Obviously. The seed is the gospel, okay? And the power to save is right there. I mean, Romans 1.16, for example, okay? Romans 1.16. So that means that any schlep can go out and preach the word, and God really doesn't care where or how. I mean, the sower, 
What kind of idiot sows seed in rocky ground? Right? Seriously, in an, in an agricultural type culture, society that Jesus was preaching in, he told the parable of four different types of soils. Three of them were just that big, are you kidding me? Right? The other one was good soil. He didn't reprove the sower. He didn't talk bad about the sower, right? He just said, go sow the seed. So <clears throat> you can never go wrong preaching the gospel to somebody. That's why I don't believe in uh, divine appointments. I think that's crap. Why? Well, so everybody we meet a divine appointment. What did God say in, in Mark 16? Go preach the gospel to your divine appointment. No. Every creature, everybody, he goes sow the seed. Just throw it out there. Throw it out. That's why people say, well, gospel tracks don't work. You know what? And I say, well, I don't think I'm ever going to have to apologize to Jesus Christ for passing out a gospel track. You know? I'm sorry. I passed out a chick track the other day. <laughs> Seriously, right? No. Okay, but what do the Mormons do? What's their gospel? Is there any power in their gospel? Where's their power? Folks, it's in the sower. Because when you run across a Mormon, just like me yesterday, and I told Dave, I was like, that guy was so nice. I mean, I want to be his friend. <laughs> I just, you think, well, I, and then you kind of sit there and you shake your head and you're like, well, I'm a Christian. I'm supposed to be nice too. What's wrong with me? <laughs> you know? And, and then I got to thinking about it and chewing on it and I slept on it and I thought, it's demonic. Well, serious? No, seriously. They have no power in their seed. Their gospel is a false gospel. Why is their church so big? Why is their church so strong? Why does it have such a missions presence, folks? Because they have, they have put the power of conversion into the sower. And they have cultivated this, this idea that if we're neat and courteous and kind and clean, everybody's going to like us, and then they'll want to be our friends, and they'll come into our church, and it works. It's demonic. It's demonic. Yeah, so it's like Joel Osteen. So anyway, that's, uh, that'll get us close to the start time for your Crest Bible study. That was, uh, like I said, that was just kind of extra. Um, we'll put Mormons here. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is kind of where we're going to go today. I want to talk about Ichabod. Um, I wasn't in the, the big service. I, I start getting weekends off um, in two weeks, so then I'll be into big church. I won't have to work on Sundays. Um, but I'm sure Greg touched on Ichabod. I don't know how much he, he talked about Ichabod in 1 Samuel 4, but I wanted to, to talk about Ichabod tonight in the time that we have. And this, this idea right here is... I mean, I, I, I don't know what, what goes through your mind or how you view the world and, and Christianity today. If, if you're like me, you read through the Old Testament, you look at the, the nation of Israel, and you find yourself shaking your head a lot, don't you? I mean, you read through there, and you read Samson, and you go, what? Really? Right? And then you come up, and you get Israel and all the kings, and these kings, and they do these wicked things and you're like are you serious you know you got what right and you shake your head as you read through the history of of israel and i want you to think about the old testament history of israel they are called out of egypt right in in one moment of time god bang he makes the nation of israel he 
calls them out in one moment of time in, in, uh, in, in the Exodus. They come out of Egypt and then they begin their slow ascent. Now it's a troubled ascent through the judges and all of that, but they get to David and Solomon and that's the apex. And right there we see Solomon, he's reigning over almost all of the promised land. Um, all of the nations are coming into Israel. There's this mission aspect that God wants to be known throughout the nations and that's accomplished through Solomon. And Solomon blows it and then we go down through the kings and then we end up where? In a rapture out of the land. In judgment. So God takes them, boom, out of judgment. Out of, out of the land in judgment. First, the Assyrian captivity in 750. Um, a, oh no, BC, and uh, and then of course the 606 uh, BC captivity of the the two uh, Judah nations to to Babylon, and and then that's 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 basically it. And you think, well, well, of course, you know, they're they messed up. Well, think about us in the church. Acts chapter one, we're called out of the world in one moment, bang, coming of the Holy Spirit. Right? We have this new birth, we have this new thing, the regeneration, the, the church is, is now alive and in the world. And then we have a troubled start, and yeah, we, we go through some, some birthing pains and, and growing pains, and yet in the, the Philadelphian age, right, we have the Bible, we have this great age of missions, they take the, the, the scripture and the, the gospel across the, the oceans and out to the world, and sun never sets on the British Empire, and they're teaching English using the King James Bible, and we all know that, right? Big deal. Well, then it plummets downward, of course, through the Laodicean age and the apostasy. And at the end of the apostasy, what do we see? We see a rapture in judgment. And God takes us out of the land and puts us into judgment, judgment seat of Christ. Okay? Um, just a reminder that the rapture is basically God bringing judgment upon an unfaithful steward. Okay? For many people, it will be joyous. For some, it will not. All right, but that's what it is. It's God's, God removing an unfaithful steward at the end of a dispensation. We failed. Um, <clears throat> that's something else I'd like to talk about one of these days is, is um, you know, the, the purpose of the church in, in the context of dispensations. But here's, here's my point, and here's why I want to talk about Ichabod. Because we read about the nation of Israel, whether it's over here before David in the time of the judges, and we shake our head and we think, oh, how in the world, right? Or maybe it's over here in the time of the kings and the apostasy, you know, when God sends all these prophets. You look at the prophets and when did he send the prophets? Well, when they're in a mess. And the prophets, they preach and 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 they, preach and they, preach and they get no fruit, none, right? And, and God says, I'm done. And he raptures them out. We, we read this and we shake our head and we say, oh my, how, how dumb can you be, right? How dumb can you be? How, how deaf can your ears be not to hear the word of God? How, we shake our head at, at the nation of Israel. Where are we living today in my little bell curve? We're over here. Folks, <laughs> we shake our head at Israel. All you're doing is looking in the mirror. That's us. And we're messed up. And we don't know it. We're wrong. We're off track. We're in apostasy. We had the truth and we left it. We have enough remnants of the truth to where there's groups of us that say we're Bible believers. And yet, and yet, and yet, we're going to see it in Ichabod. That's a mirror of me, of us. 
And my, my, my desire tonight is that this would be disturbing to you. Because it was disturbing to me. This is uh, just some stuff from my, my personal time in the Bible. This is just some stuff that I, I, I saw one day and I started working some things out and I thought, oh man, that's, that's us, you know? Me and my five years or six years back, however many years we've been back uh, in the States since, since our time on the mission field, and you know, it's just, I, I can't get my feet under me and I can't figure things out, and you know, things are just going wrong and some things are going right, and I think yeah, that's where we're at. And, and I look at the time of Ichabod, I see me, and I see the state of the church in Western society. So um, if you have a Bible, turn to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 4. I've got a couple of cross-references, not many, and we probably won't go there for, for the sake of time. But uh, let's start in 1 Samuel 4.19. I'm going to pray, and then we'll start talking about Ichabod. Lord, we love you, and uh, we thank you for the time we have together tonight. It's always good to, uh, to just simply take an hour or two out of the week and open the Bible and see what you have for us. I pray, God, that, uh, Lord, you take control of our time, of me, as I talk about uh, your scripture. Lord, that I would do so in a manner that would glorify you and please you. And I pray, Father, that um, hearts would be open, minds would be open uh, to the ministry of the Holy Spirit through the scripture uh, in everyone here. And I pray, God, that uh, the word of God, like the law, would be a mirror for us, that we would see ourselves and see things that we need to get cleaned up. And then we would wash ourselves in the word so that we might be more like Christ um, after this study than before. So we love you, Lord, and ask it in Jesus' name for his sake and glory. Amen. Um, Ichabod. So, look, Ichabod, in 419, here's where we find this kid. It says, um, and his daughter-in-law, talking about Eli, now we're going to talk about Eli a lot because Eli is the, the chief priest during these first four chapters of 1 Samuel. And it says, his daughter-in-law, Phineas's wife, was with child near to be delivered. And when she heard the tidings that the ark of God was taken and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and travailed for her pains come upon her. She's going to give birth. And about the time of her death, the women that stood by her said unto her, Fear not, for thou hast born a son. But she answered not, neither did she regard it. She named the child Ichabod, saying... The glory is departed from Israel because the ark of God was taken because her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory is departed from Israel for the ark of God is taken. So Ichabod is the name that's given to this child of Phineas. Phineas was one of the priests, one of the sons of Eli, one of the two sons. The other one was uh, Hophni. Okay? Um, this name was given to a child on a very momentous day. It was a day that God's people suffered utter defeat and death at the hands of their enemies, the Philistines. And so you guys know how it works in the, in the Bible. You know, a lot of times we get names that, that mean things. And so this name means something. Something happened this day that this woman gave this child the name Ichabod. And it says in verses, uh, verses 1 and 2, just a little bit of, of, of backstory. 1 Samuel 4, 1 and 2, The word of Samuel came, unto all, or came to all Israel. Now Israel went out against the Philistines to battle and pitched beside Ebenezer. And the Philistines pitched in Aphek. And the Philistines put themselves in array against Israel. And when they joined battle, Israel was smitten before the Philistines. And they slew of the army in the field about 4,000 men. Well, they regroup and they try it again. Verse 10, same outcome. Verse 10, the Philistines fought and Israel was smitten. 
And they fled every man into his tent, and there was a very great slaughter for their fellow of Israel, 30,000 footmen. The ark of God was taken. The two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were slain. Eli dies that same day in verse 18, and then in verse 19, 20, and 21, this young lady uh, dies in travail, and she gives her child the name Ichabod. The glory has departed. So Israel, God's people, were left alone. Now think about it. They were still in the land. They were still there. They still had their religion. They still had their rituals. And yet they're hollow. They're empty. There's no glory. There's no presence of God in their midst. There's no power, no victory. And my question is, how how in the world did they get to this place? God's people, God's chosen people that God appeared to them, that God gave them the law, that God gave them the tabernacle and all the stuff inside. God gave them his presence in the, in the cloud uh, by day and in the fire by night. God who manifested himself to his people. How could this people get into this predicament? God turned his people over to the world for judgment. His people still existed, like I said. They were still right there in the land. You could go out and look at them. They could still go through all the motions of their religion as God's people, but God was, he was not with them. The Bible says the glory had departed. Ichabod, God wrote Ichabod over them. They were alone and left to their own devices. They were defeated by their enemies. So how did we get to Ichabod? And more importantly, because as we look at Ichabod, I want you to think about this, folks. We're looking at ourselves. We're looking at ourselves. How do we fix it? (laughs) Right? How do we fix it? Because the problem that I run into each and every day is one of time. Right? I'm going to be 51 this year. I was talking to a buddy of mine last night at work. You know, we were just talking. He says, yeah, my dad died when he was 59. I thought, Uh eight. (laughs) Right? Eight. Well, what are you doing with the time that you have? You're going to die. You have no time. You, you don't. How are you living today to make a, a, a difference in eternity? How are you living today so that at the judgment seat of Christ, you glorify the Savior that gave you everything? So let's just take a step back. What I want to do is get a running start at Mr. Ichabod. Let's start in chapter 1. Let, let's just kind of see how this thing unfolds. And then once we get to Ichabod, we're going to take one jump ahead to chapter 7 and see how we can fix this wagon. I want to start, I want to start in chapter 1 because the story of Ichabod starts here. Now, this is, this is where God's people are, and I want to show you Hannah, the story of Hannah. God's people failed to follow God and God only. We follow God, don't we? I mean, we're, this is Crest Bible Church. We're Bible believers. We understand that. Our pastor, Greg Axe, he teaches church history. God, we've got uh, how to study the Bible in, in discipleship too. We, we, we're Bible believers. I mean, yes? Okay, we know, we know why, what we believe and why we believe it. Well, look at Hannah. Look at Hannah. Because the story of Ichabod begins with this woman. Just chapter 1 and chapter 2. Now, Hannah, verses 1 to 3, there was a certain man in uh, Ramathaim Zophim, the Mount Ephraim. His name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah. That's her. We're going to look at her right now. And the name of the other was Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. 
Okay, now this man, he went up out of the city yearly to worship, to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in Shiloh, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. So look, here's what we got. Hannah was one of the wives of Elkanah. They were dutifully faithful going to church each and every year. They made that pilgrimage up to Shiloh. It's like us. Every Sunday, we dutifully gather in our churches to worship. Okay, We're, we we have that custom, we, and that's good. Hannah, however, is not satisfied with what she has. Now, she has a desire in her heart, and it is good. Okay, verse 9. She says, Hannah rose up after they had eaten in Shiloh, after they had drunk. Now Eli the priest sat upon a seat by a post of the temple of the Lord. Now she was in bitterness of soul, and she prayed unto the Lord and wept sore. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid, remember me, and not forget thine handmaid, but will give unto thy handmaid a man-child. Then I will give him unto the Lord, and all the day uh, I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life. There shall no razor come upon his head. So Hannah wants more. She longs for fruit. She wants a child. And she prays for him. Now look, that's a good thing, is it not? What do we want in our, what do we want in our Christian life? We want to see fruit. We want to see fruit in our own lives. We want to grow, but more so, we want to see people come to know the Lord. We want to see children. We want to see spiritual children. We want to reproduce. And so her desire is good, and her response to that desire is good. When we have desires in our heart, where do we go? Amazon? Right? Click, click, and two-day prime. Man, I get what I want. You know, if we've got desires and godly desires in our heart, we're going to take them before the Lord because He is the provider. He's the one that can give them to us. So it's a good thing. I don't want to bag on Hannah and say she, she's just messed up, but, but she's, she's, she got a good thing going, but she's messed up. Because look what she said. Verse 11. Let's read verse 11 again. She vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid, remember me, and not forget thine handmaid, but will give unto thine handmaid a man-child. Good up to here. Well, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. Okay, she's got good intentions. I'm going to give my child to the Lord. What is she referring to with the razor? Anyone? Haircut. Haircut, yeah. Nazarite vow. Nazarite vow. This says Numbers chapter 6. Okay, why? Well, because in Israel, God set apart a, a priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood. So if you weren't of the physical lineage of Aaron, you could not be a priest. He gave the Aaronic priesthood, the Levites, to be their helpers. So they were the ministers. If you didn't form physically form part of those two families, you didn't get in. You couldn't serve God. So God set apart this vow and said it's a Nazarite vow. If somebody wants to serve God, if somebody wants to dedicate themselves to a greater ministry, this is how you do it. That's what the Nazarite vow was. So God says, hey, anybody's welcome, here it is. And so she remembers this. She's remembering scripture. She's remembering what she taught. So she has good intention, good ideas, biblical ideas. But, right, there's always that. There's always that, that, that word. Verse 19. They rose up in the morning early, worshiped before the Lord, and returned, and came to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and you know what? God answered her prayer. The Lord remembered her. Wherefore it came to pass, when the time was come, about after Hannah had conceived, that she bare a son, called his name Samuel, saying, Because I asked him of the Lord. God answers her prayer. Everything's good. Verse 21 and the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer unto the Lord the yearly sacrifice. Okay, off to church again. 
and his, and his vow, and it said, Hannah went not up, for she said unto her husband, I will go not up until the child be weaned, and then I will bring him that he may appear before the Lord, and there, what? There abide forever. Oh, now, wait, wait, wait. Now, just wait a minute. How old is a weaned child? Give or take, when do you get your teeth? Right? Two-ish. You know? So about two-ish, he's got some chompers, and most women don't want to, they want to wean him. Right? So look at this, look at, look at what happened here. She has good intentions. She takes a, a one-and-a-half, two-year-old child, a toddler, walks up to this guy she doesn't know outside of, yeah, that's the priest. I see him once a year. Here you go. I vowed a vow, and that's my child. See ya. She leaves this kid with a strange man in a strange place to be raised by strangers outside the context of her family. Where's that in the Bible? Honestly. Well, what does the Bible say that we should do with our children? Train them up in the way that they should go. And who should do that? Their parents. Okay, okay. Well, see, you, you, you look at that and you go, oh, God, where, where is that? And it's not in Scripture. Well, Elkanah knows where this idea comes from. Look at verse 23. See, the husband, he, he got it figured out. Elkanah, her husband, said unto her, Do what seemeth? Good, or do what seemeth thee good. Tarry until thou hast uh, have weaned him. Only the Lord establishes words. So the woman abode and gave her son suck until she weaned him. He says, "Do what seemeth thee good." You know, in First Samuel, what's what's the book right before First Samuel? You know, we got Judges and Ruth. Who's the last judge? Samuel. We're still reading about the judges. What's that key verse in the, in the book of Judges, that last verse where it says, they ain't no king in Israel and everybody just did what they wanted to do, right? Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. What do you think Hannah's doing? Where'd she get that idea? She's dreamed it up. But yet, what Hannah did is what, uh, what happens in the church today. It's like, this, it's like, hey, welcome to the church. Welcome to Christianity. Look, she takes this, this two-year-old child, maybe two-year-old. She leaves him alone to be raised by priests, you know? And it just, why? Because it seemed like the right thing to do for her. It just, it just seemed okay. So rather than following what the Scripture said, because it was spelled out in Scripture what the Nazarite should do, rather than, than train up that child in the way that he should go, she just makes it up. And she is, she is, she is, she is, she is, look, she is a picture for us of dedicated Christians in a time of apostasy. That, right at the end of the bell curve, dedicated Christians in times of apostasy. You know, she has, she has no commitment or submission to the final authority of God's word. It's a buffet. Folks, it's a buffet. You see, just take what you want. Just belly up to the Bible and take what you want. And what you don't want, well, you can just leave it on the buffet or just leave it on your plate and they'll take your plate away and you can go get another one. She comes up with good ideas. She wants to dedicate her son to the Lord, but when it comes to the execution of that idea, actually doing something, you know what she does? Whatever. Have you ever heard that? People say, whatever. Whatever. You know, like, I don't care. Well, she just made it up. She just thinks it's the right thing to do. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 11. Chapter 2, verse 11 and 19. 
1 Samuel 2.11, Elkanah went to Ramah to his house, and the child did minister unto the Lord before Eli the priest. So there he sits, and then verse 19, Moreover, his mother made him a little coat and brought it to him from year to year when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Hi, Mom. Bye, Mom. Next year, hi, Mom. Bye, Mom. Seriously. Christians today, look, Christians today, I know... You, you bump into Christians all the time. They have good intentions. They have a desire for God. They have a little bit of the Bible, but they serve God according to that which is right in their own eyes. They don't care what Scripture says. They don't. And so, you know, I, I think this happens, number one, because there's no king in Israel, you know, like we saw mentioned in Judges. You know, there's just no established authority. There's no final authority. So if you pastors actually lead their people with final authority so their congregations lack a solid leadership behind clear direction but I think it also happens because people today want to do church the way they want to do church and so rather than looking into the Bible and the Bible only to define how we execute the desires that we have the biblical desires that we have we just, whatever right whatever I mean just for example I don't know why I've got this in but you know I want to where is the biblical authority for parachurch ministries where, where's the biblical authority for seminaries? Okay, there's no, there's no biblical prohibition. There is no thing that says, thou shalt not have seminaries. Thou shalt not have parachurch ministry. I'm just saying. Where is that in Scripture? It, it ain't there. Good intentions, yeah. Yeah. At the moment of execution, I don't care what the Bible says. I'm just going to do it my way. Well, because the Bible said that God works through the local church. You can't miss that if you read the Bible from Acts to Philemon, right? Church, 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 church. Well, I don't like the church. Oh, okay. I see now. It, whatever, right? Whatever, whatever. And so look, if the Bible is the final authority, dude, it's the final authority, whether you like it or not. And if we say we're Bible believers... Holy cow! Let's believe the Bible! I mean, honestly. Well, cold contact evangelism doesn't work. Oh yeah, let me on that hobby horse. You know? Cold contact evangelism doesn't work. But yeah, what do you see throughout the New Testament? Oh no, no, no. Bill Hybels. Bill Hybels says, you have to barbecue before you can preach. We've got to have that relationship, brother. Really? Oh, I like, and this one I like. Oh, you've got to earn the right to preach the gospel. Even though the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings just done told you to preach the gospel to every creature, you've got to go out and earn the right. No, you don't. No, you do not. You do not. Gospel tracts don't work. Tell that to Paul. He wrote a gospel tract to the Romans. Hmm. And when he couldn't go to the Hebrews, you know what he did? He wrote them a gospel tract got 13 chapters and it's in your Bible. It's called Hebrews. Hebrews. It's not difficult, folks. So look, Hannah. Hannah shows our first step toward this Ichabod boy. God's people in general have failed to follow God and God only. So it's a mirror. Stop it. Just Let's just stop that. Stop it. Okay? It's I go back to this, this thing. The power to save. Is it in the seed or is it in the sower? If it's in the seed then stop opposing the people that preach the gospel. Do you know how hard it is to preach the gospel on the street? 
mean, you look at the street preachers, okay? And they big gruff boys, they get up there and they start hollering. And you think, man, that guy's got thick skin. But you know what? It's not easy. It's not. And so you get the opposition on the street. You don't need it in a church. I mean, well, I don't know why Christians would oppose the preaching of the gospel. Paul didn't. In Philippians, he said, I don't care whether preach pretense or in truth. I don't care. Christ is preached. And in that, I'm going to rejoice in all glory. He says, that's fine with me. Just go preach. Why? Because Paul knew the power to save is in the, it's in the seed, not in the sower. Bible believers, folks, we're Bible believers. That means we believe the Bible, so let's believe it. Well, number two, after Hannah, we bump into God's leaders. Now, this is the story of Eli and his sons. We saw the little story of, of, of Hannah. Okay, God's people in general, that's where they're at. They got some good intentions, but at the moment of execution, <laughs> you know, whatever. Just whatever you want. Well, God's leaders are kind of a mess too. Now, we've got Eli. He's the priest. He's got two sons who are his under-priests. I guess you'd call them Hophni and Phinehas. Um, and what, what we see in these guys, I mean, I know this is devotional, okay? What, what you see, you got senior pastor and associate pastors. Well, you got it. You got the priest. He's teaching his kids how to be the priest in his in his absence. Okay, so he's he's reproducing himself, or supposed to be reproducing himself there, and in, in his kids. Look at First Samuel two twelve. Let's talk about Eli first, because God, God draws a distinction between Eli and his sons here in this verse. First uh, Samuel two twelve. It says, "Now the sons of Eli were sons of Belial. They knew not the Lord." The implication is Eli did. Okay, God God says, "This is Eli. Here's his sons." His sons aren't like him. His sons are sons of Belial, and they don't know me. Okay, so the implication is, he does. He does. Eli does. And that highlights the failure that we see in Eli. This highlights the failure that we see in the older generation today that needs to be passing off the torch to those who are coming up uh, as, at, and the newer generation. Um, this guy had the word of God. He had knowledge of God. Um, Eli, he failed to follow God, failed to follow God only, and reproduce himself and his kids. Now, this failure of Eli is made uncomfortably clear because God sends him a messenger, right? Times of apostasy, here come the preachers, right? The prophets, the messengers of God. Look at uh, verse, verse 27, verse 27. Um, you got a Bible paragraph mark, so you have a paragraph mark right there, and it says, And there came a man of God unto Eli, and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Did I plainly appear unto the house of thy father when they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house? And he begins to reprove him, but I want to take a small little sidestep. This is kind of a commercial. We'll get back to our regular programming here in just one second, because there's something kind of interesting right here. It says that the man of God came unto Eli, and he said, Now, what are the first words out of the man of God's mouth? Thus says the Lord. I mean, what, what other words would you expect to come out of a guy's mouth that's a man of God, right? It's not self-help. <laughs> All right? It's not made me feel good. It's not let's sit down and have a hug at Starbucks, you know, and, and, and mm. but no. What, what comes out of the mouth of the man of God is thus saith the Lord. I mean, I don't know what else a man of God would say, you know, whether the people want to hear it or not, whether their feelings are hurt or not, and whether they get all upset or not, the man of God will always say what God wants him to say, because that's what a man of God does. That's all that matters. Well, Eli gets charged with two specific sins. Verse 28, 
uh, this guy goes on reproving him. And he says, did I, choo did, did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest? He's talking about Aaron and, and raising up Aaron. To offer upon my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me. And did I give unto the house of thy father all the offerings made by fire of the children of Israel? He's referring to all these uh, privileges that, that Eli had because he was born in this line. He was made a priest. And now comes the charge, verses 29 and 30. And there's two specific things that God says to him. Number one, wherefore kick ye at my sacrifice and mine offering, which I have commanded in my habitation. And, he says, and, number two, honorest thy sons above me to make yourselves fat with the chiefest of all the offerings of my uh, of Israel, my people. Now he reverses them and says the same thing. Verse 30, Wherefore the Lord, of, Lord God of Israel saith, I said indeed that thy house and the house of thy father should walk before me forever. But now, saith the Lord, be it far from me. For them that honor me, I will honor. He wasn't doing that. And they that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. He was doing that. There's two things. Eli despised God by not taking God and his word seriously. Eli despised God by not taking God and his word seriously. God says, verse 29, Wherefore kick ye at my sacrifice and mine offering which I have commanded? I told you to do things. Why are you kicking against the pricks? Okay, and the, the, uh, if, if you've ever been on a farm... You know what he's talking about. When you need to move the cattle through the chutes, you either get a stick or a cattle prod, and you poke them, right? You, you, that's the prick. You, you poke them. And when they don't want to move, what do they do? They kick at that thing, right? They kick at it. I still remember JD back in Peculiar when we had the cows, and, and they kick at that thing, kick at that thing. Uh, and, and that's what God's saying. God says, I'm commanding you to do this, and you're kicking at that commandment. He's despising God because he didn't take God's word seriously kicked at the sacrifice which he commanded, and he despised God. And then Eli honored men above God. That's, that's what you see next. He says, he says you, you honor your sons above me. Well, what does he mean? 1 Samuel 3.13, if you want to just take a quick peek. 1 Samuel 3.13, it's another indictment against Eli. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knoweth, because his sons made themselves vile, and he... What? He restrained them not. Okay, look, folks, look. You, you don't miss this. Seriously, don't miss this. In churches today, we see an existing leadership. We see the older generation continually despising God and His Word with their man-made, carnal, worldly programs and services. I don't care. I just don't care about that. Do we have comfortable chairs or do we have wooden pews? Do you care? I, I mean, I, we, uh, these, these guys are like Eli, right? They, they honor this, this, this next generation of leaders who are worse than they are. Worse than they are. They overlook gross sin in this new generation. They overlook gross character flaws. They turn a blind eye to sin and just sweep it under the carpet, hoping it goes away. And they honor these new leaders, these ministers, these pastors, these missionaries in the name of the ministry, the work, because if Eli says, well, if I don't have my sons, who's going to help me in the ministry? Who's going to do the work after me? And this is all I got. Well, these are the new leaders of the new generation that are supposed to carry on the work, and yet in, in Eli's sons, what do we see? 
Well, let's look at them. We talked about Eli and his failure. Well, Hophni and Phinehas, this new generation of leaders, we already saw that they're sons of Belial. They don't know God. They don't know the Bible, the God of the Bible. They're selfish and self-serving. Go back to chapter 2, verse 13. Look at these guys. Look at these guys. So God, he has this indictment against the sons of Eli, verse 12. He calls them the sons of Belial. He says, they don't know me. They don't know the Lord. Verse 13, it says, the priest's custom. Here's Eli or his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant came, and while the flesh was seething with the flesh hook of three teeth in his hand, uh, and he struck into the pan the kettle or the cauldron or the pot, and all the flesh, all that the flesh hook brought up, the priest took what? For himself. So they did in Shiloh unto all the Israelites that came hither. So number one, I want to tell you, these guys are selfish and self-serving. They just take what they want from the people of God. They come up and offer their tithes and offerings. Folks, tithes and offerings aren't money, it's food. They came in, they brought food. Why? So that God's ministers could, could sustain themselves because they didn't have an inheritance. They couldn't grow in their own crops and their own cows. And so that was their food. That was their sustenance for the year. But, but no, ministry is no longer something sacred today. You know, it's just, like, it's just like this. It's all about me. You know, these guys who want to go into them, so many of them go into the ministry. Why? Because it's a nice career path. I want to help people. Well, now wait a minute. Ministry is more than that. If you want to help people, be a police officer. <laughs> you can help anybody you want. Help them to understand the speed limit. Help them to understand they should not park in a handicapped spot. Help them to understand you cannot beat your wife without a free trip down to county. You know, if you want to go into the ministry today, you know what you have to do? Here's, here's what you have to do, folks. You go to seminary. You get a professional degree. Just like others that go to the university to get any other kind of professional degree. You want to be an accountant? You go get a business degree and major in accounting. You want to be a computer programmer? You go to university and you get a computer science degree. You want to be a lawyer? You go, you go to that law school, right? Doctor? Med school? Pastor? Seminary? Well, where do we get that idea? You know, you get your degree... And then what do you do? Well, now I've got to get a job. Well, what do you do to get a job? You send out your resumes. Well, there's job boards. Dude, there's job boards. Uh, Godcallingyou.com. You know, you can job boards for churches. And so you get your degree. You send out your resumes to places you think you might want to work. You're going to have to take a youth pastor job because that's entry-level ministry. You do your two years or so, and then you start looking for a small congregation to trade up. Then you get your small congregation and you work for another three to five years and you build up some more content for your resume and then you can start really looking for that successful job in a church of 500 plus. Now I guess my question to you would be, do you think I'm kidding? No. It's selfish, it's self-serving, it's pathetic, it's powerless, and it's offensive, man. Seriously. This is not a profession. It's not. You don't go to school. You don't go to university to learn how to be a pastor. It's not that way. Folks, if anything, if anything, it is an apprenticeship. You need to learn how to be a pastor by studying under a pastor. And yet we remove these guys from the pastor and they put them in a, in a college environment and we expect them to come out as pastors. But this is as ridiculous as evolution. 
<laughs> so look, 2.15, that was that, like, they're selfish, but look at verse 15, next verse. And before they burnt the fat, the priest servant came and said unto the man that sacrificed, Hey, give flesh to roast for the priest, for he will not have sodden flesh of thee, but raw. He doesn't want it boiled because that takes all the fat off. When you're going to grill out, you want the fat because that makes it taste good. So this new generation of ministers today, hey, they're their own authority. God already told them what they got. This is what you get, and that's what you get. But that wasn't good enough for them. They wanted something else. Well, who cares what God would have for them? He will not have sodden flesh. Oh, he'll have it his way. Welcome to Burger King. Verse 16, and it says, If any man said unto him, Let them not fail to burn the fat presently, and then take as much as thy soul desireth. Then he would answer him, Nay, but thou shalt give it me now, and if not, I will take it by force. See, they end up controlling their congregation by force rather than leading their congregation by example. A clear biblical vision of where God wants his people to go. And again, I refer to evangelism. Folks, how many of you want to evangelize more? Yeah, all of us. Wouldn't it be nice to have a leader help you do that? By example, yep. rather than someone just sitting back and saying, man, you want to evangelize more, so obviously God is doing something in your life. Why are you quenching the spirit? You wicked sinner, right? We need good godly examples. These men were not that. They were controlling people and taking what they want by force. Now the result of all this, and please don't miss this, before we go on to our next point, verse 17. 1 Samuel 2.17 Wherefore the sin of the young men, these new associate pastors they got, these new priests, the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord. For men abhorred the offering of the Lord. It says people just hated going to church. It's a drag. It's drudgery. It's duty rather than joy. Right? And God lays the blame at the feet of carnal leadership. Eli, the old generation, failed to follow God and God only. He be, and and <clears throat> that, that lack of godliness in the leader means he cannot produce godly leadership. And so his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were the result of Eli's failure. They were lost, self-serving leaders. And who suffered the most? God's people. Who suffers the most today because of the lack of godly committed leadership. God's people. How do you think God feels about that? You know, if I can get, I can get up here and I can get a bit riled up about something, how much more God, who is holy and just and good? It's his people. Well, God's desire is clear. Now, this is the story of Samuel. We saw the story of Hannah, okay, what kind of the, the broad brush of what God's people are doing. We saw the story of Eli and his sons, what the leadership is doing. Well, what's God's desire in all this? This is the story of Samuel. Here's, here's what God wants in the midst of this mess. <clears throat> here's what God wants for his people who had the truth of God's word but chose to reject that truth for what seemed right in their own eyes. We call that apostasy. Okay, The older generation simply does not care to invest the time and effort into raising up the next generation right. They don't want to call sin, sin. They don't want to deal with sin among their new leaders. They don't. Rather, they just sweep these sins under the carpet 
and they just say, let's forget about it for the sake of the work, for the sake of the ministry. And I say, you know what? You can sweep your filth under the carpet. It still stinks. You might not be able to see it, but it sure stinks. You know it's there. Well, this new generation of leaders is carnal, it's worldly, it's self-serving. Ministry's just a job for them, and they'll make sure they get the most out of it for themselves. And the people of God, although they have good intentions like Hannah, they fail in putting those intentions into practice because they just want to do it their way. Rather than being truly Bible believers, just saying, I don't understand why, but God said it, so that's why I'm going to do it. And so the vast majority who go to worship, they hate it. Current leadership, status quo, you know, it's just... It's, it's just irritating. And they abhor the offering of the Lord. They hate going to church. Okay, so what's God want in the midst, midst of all this? Verse 35. Here's what God wants. <clears throat> this is this man of God. He's still preaching, you know, this, this indictment against Eli. And he says something. We ought to pay attention to it. You know, God says, I will. That's, I like that. When God says, I will, he will. You know, Lucifer said it five times and he won't. But God will. He says, I will. Raise me up a faithful priest that shall do according to that which is in mine heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house. He shall walk before mine anointed forever. What does God want in the midst of apostasy? With, with the leadership that has just gone to pot, with the people of God who are so irritated with, with you know, going to worship, they're just, they, they abhor it, and frankly, the, the masses are just in a mess doing things their own way. God, what does God want? Does, you know, God, if I could just find 500 people, just 500 people, we could make this thing work, 500 people. What does he say? I will raise up a faithful priest. You know what God wants? First thing, you ought, you ought to pay attention. He just wants one. That's one. That's just one. 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 Okay? Why? Why? You know, Ezekiel 22:30. you guys know this verse. I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge, stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it. But I found none. I mean, I don't know if you find that encouraging. I sure do. Why? Because I'm one. <laughs> <laughs> That's me, right? But what is this one guy, what does God want in this one guy? He says, I want a, what? Faithful priest. So God wants just one man or one woman who will simply do what God wants him to do, how God wants him to do it. But it is not that difficult. Now Samuel obviously is the man that God raises up in these times of apostasy. Samuel's different. Chapter 3 verse 1. Jump over to chapter 3 verse 1. You know Samuel lived in this time of apostasy. It's a time very similar to ours. It says in verse 1 the child Samuel ministered unto the Lord before Eli. The word of the Lord was precious in those days. There was no open vision. You know just like us there's a famine in the land. There is not a famine of the word of God. There's not. I mean, if you need a Bible, you can get a Bible for free. If you have a phone, Lord help you. But you can get it on, the, on your phone, you know? I mean, it's, there, there's more Bibles out here than we know what to do with. Who reads it? And out of those who read it, who studies it to do it? Nobody. I mean, I'm sure somebody does, right? I mean, because it's Crest Bible Church. Or we're, we're here, right? There's somebody, somebody. But honestly, would we live the way we live if we really 
obeyed the Bible? Uh, anyway, uh, Amos 8, 11, the days come, saith the Lord, I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread nor thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They don't want to hear it. Well, well, get back to the leadership. Verse 2, look what it says about Eli again. So in these times of, of famine, that the word of the Lord was precious, like diamonds, there ain't many of them, so it's precious, so it's, it's a famine in the land. It came to pass at the time Eli was laid down in his place. His eyes began to wax dim that he could not see, and the lamp of God went out, ere the lamp of God went out in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Samuel was laid down to sleep. So God says three things very specifically about Eli. Eli was laid down. That guy's lazy. It's like so many of God's leaders today. Lazy. What, when you talk about resources, right? We're going to make an investment. Resources. Now, I'll talk to you about resources, right? Resources. When I say you need to make an investment of resources, what pops into your mind? Money. money. Give me the money, right? Give me the money. Well, look, look, look. Do you need money to glorify God and, and enjoy Him forever? Do you need money to fulfill the mission that He gave you to be and make disciples? Do you need money? No. Do you need resources? Oh, yeah. Now, now what are the resources God gave you that you need to invest, I'll tell you what. One is, time. How much you got? You got less than 24 hours right now. Maybe tomorrow you'll start with another 24, maybe not. And then the big one? That's, that's the toughie effort. We don't need more money, folks. Keep your money. Right? Greg will kill me. Here it's people me say that. <clears throat> but I'll tell you what you can do. If you really want to make a dent in eternity, start, start spending time and effort in being and making a disciple. That's your resources. That's where you can make a difference. Eli was lazy. Did what he wanted with his time. Gave no effort to the ministry. None at all. Lazy. Laid down. We see Eli's eyes began to wax dim that he could not see. He's blind. Like so many of God's leaders today, they lack a solid, clear, biblical vision of where God wants his people to be. You know, <clears throat> when I taught, when I taught, oh, this we're going to, don't have much time. When when we when 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 I taught my uh, my expository preaching workshop on how to how to study the Bible and how to prepare a lesson or a, a sermon and then how to deliver that, I always taught my people one one specific thing. When when you're studying the Bible, not not so much studying the Bible. When you're preparing your message, you need to think about the people you're preaching to. They are at point A. Wherever that is, in their walk, in their, uh, their life, in their marriage, whatever area of life you're, you're talking about, they're point A. And you want to get them to point B. How are you going to do that? Right? You, you, you get a congregation. Okay, like when I, got a, when I, when I started the church in Costa Rica, we, we passed out like 10,000 flyers. And really, we started with like 100 people first Sunday. 100 people showed up, but they were the bunch of disgruntled Christians that didn't want to go to any church, right? So we get a bunch of carnal, 
awful disgruntled Christians. It was like David in his cave of Adullam, all these debtors and, and people running from the law and whatever. And so you say, man, look at the carnal mess I'm in, right? I want them to be more spiritual. What book in the Bible could I preach to them that could move them from point A to point B? Right? Now you can chew on that. There's several, right? Several. Um, and, and that's what we did. You know, that's what we did. And then, then after that, then you start next. What's the next thing we got to work on? And what, once, you know, we got to the point where one, one time we got to the point where we needed to be evangelizing. We needed to be preaching the gospel. We needed to be gospel-centered. We needed to be reaching people out intentionally. And people didn't want to do that. Uh, it caused a lot of friction in the congregation. And I said, we need to study the book of Romans. And we did. We did. We studied the book of Romans. Why? That'll get you there. That'll get you there. So Eli, he's blind. He's lazy. He's not going to put that kind of effort in there. He's blind. He has no vision about where to take his, his congregation. How do I get the people of God from the mess they're in to less mess? Okay? How do I help them move forward in their walk with God? He's blind. No vision. And then you see the lamp of God that went out in the temple of the Lord. He's negligent. Leaders of God's people have certain duties that God expects of them. And frankly, most leaders today are negligent. What, what do you want when you come to church? I mean, do you want, you know, good music? Uh, do you want a good theater show? Um, do you want a full-color bulletin? You know, do you want... Uh, you, you know, if, if all you got, if all you got was good, solid Bible teaching and preaching. I'd venture to say that'd be enough. Right? How many pastors spend the time and the effort to provide you with some solid Bible teaching to get you from point A to point B? <clears throat> Most of them are negligent. They're better off being CEOs or middle management somewhere. Because that's all they do. They're program managers. Well, Samuel's different, verse 4. Because here it is. The Lord called Samuel in verse 4, and he answered, Here am I. And you guys know that went on, you know, two or three times. But just understand this. God did as he said he would. In two, verse two, or chapter 2, verse 35, God said he'd raise up one faithful man. Now here in 3-4, what's he doing? He's doing just what he said. So what I want to say with this is even in times of apostasy, you can find men who are faithful to God and His Word. You can find faithful men. You can. God Himself raises them up. Now they may be few, but they are there. And you can be sure of this, these faithful men whom God raises up during times of apostasy, they will be, okay, they will be, there's one key word. They will be. They're going to be different. Why? Everybody else is in a mess. You know? And God has to take this guy, Samuel, this kid who wasn't raised by his mama. Okay, he's probably got psychosis. He's probably bipolar. Got borderline personality disorder. He probably needs psych meds, right? Probably needs to be on Valium. I don't know. But I bet if you saw him, he would, he would be dysfunctional. Let's call him that. 
But he was raised by Eli and his stepbrothers. Who are they? Hobbit Phineas. I mean, wicked sons of Belial. How did they treat him? Who knows? But you know they didn't treat him lovingly. Oh, Sammy, Sammy, let's go play. You know, let's go down to the pond and shoot tadpoles with a BB gun. No. No, this, Samuel's different. Now, we're going to see why God calls him different, but I just want you to just to know that when God raises up a man in times of apostasy, that, that man's going to look different because status quo is not him. He is not status quo. He's going to stand out in the crowd because he is different. He's not like the other leaders. He's not part of that. And he's going to rock the boat. That's the general theme of all the prophets, right? Yeah, for sure. Rock the boat, rock the boat, rock the boat. Now, there's one thing that sets this man apart, and there's one thing that will always set the man of God apart, and that's the Word of God. Look at verse 19. You guys know this. Samuel grew, the Lord was with him, and and did not let... I'm sorry, Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and did let none of his words fall to the ground. All Israel from Dan even to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established to be a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again in Shiloh. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. In verse 1 of chapter 4, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel. One thing will set these men apart. Faithful men in times of apostasy, faithful leaders will be like Samuel. They will take Scripture seriously. Verse 19, he didn't let any of the words of God fall to the ground. Not one. He paid attention to the words. That means he was looking at Scripture, at the words of Scripture. And that was his personal life, down to the very words. And then, these men are different because you can't spend that kind of time and effort in God's book without God lighting a fire up under you and giving you an opportunity to preach. And that's exactly what he does because in verse 20 it says, and all Israel, you ought to circle that, everybody from Dan even to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established to be a prophet of the Lord. How did they know that? Did they put out flyers? Did they post it on Facebook? No, look at verse 1 of chapter 4. The word of Samuel came to whom? There you go. He's in the book putting his time and effort, paying attention to every word of Scripture, not letting the one of them drop to the ground. And he is out preaching that to God's people. And they knew it. They knew they had a preacher. And, I mean, have you ever had somebody in the pulpit here or in another church? You know, you, the guy shows up and, man, he's got a message from God. And you just sit there and you go, ho, ho, You're like, Yeah. You know there's a preacher in the house today. You know, and aside from, you know, somebody who can teach you something, and that's good too, you're like, hey, no, that's interesting. You know, that's interesting. Oh, I like that. I'm going to take that note down. Oh, good cross-reference there. I like that. And you get a good lesson out of it. You know, I can use that in my own personal study. But there's a difference between that and, the, and, and, and God just hammering you. And you're going, ho, 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 got to get some things right. That's the preacher. That's the preacher. That's Samuel. He's getting the Word of God and he's getting out there. People know there's a prophet in the land because the Word of Samuel is getting preached. He's preaching it. He's preaching it. And he preached to all Israel. So look, here, here. Are you tired of the status quo? 
Are you tired of maintenance over mission? I'll say that again because that's important. Maintenance. Just doing what we've always done. Why? Well, since we're supposed to do. Maintenance over mission. Don't you want to do something for the Lord? Huh? That'd be fun, wouldn't it? Yeah. Are you tired of faithless, blind, negligent, lazy leadership in God's churches today? Are you tired of not hearing from the Lord? So either be the faithful man like Samuel, take God's word seriously, study out the words, know them, do them, and then preach them. Or find a faithful man like Samuel and follow him. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Wait, just so we look. <clears throat> what are God's people doing? Because right now, right now, chapter 3 going into chapter 4, what do they got? Oh, they got a leader. They got a man that's got the book, right? He got the book. He's the Bible believer. He's, he's the faithful man. He's out preaching to all of Israel. Woo! What are they doing? See, they got the vision now. They got a fresh word. All Israel knew Samuel had God's word because he's out preaching that word. Well, what do God's people do with this new leader, this new leadership? <gasps> Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> Can I say that again? Nothing. I like nothing. It's a, it's a contraction. Nothing is no thing. They ain't doing no thing, man. Nothing. They did nothing with it. Well, here's God's powerless people. This is the story of it. You like that because you're going to go see that movie, aren't you? Sinners. It. Good. It. Verse 1 and 2. We read this before. You see, the word of Samuel came to all Israel because he's got the words and he's out preaching. Now Israel went out against the Philistines to battle and pitched beside Ebenezer. And the Philistines pitched in Aphek. And the Philistines put themselves in array against Israel. And when they joined the battle, Israel was smitten before the Philistines. And they slew of the army in the field about four thousand men. God's people are smitten before their enemies. You know, folks, it's just like us. Remember what I said? Don't think you're reading about Israel in the time of apostasy. What you're really doing is looking at a mirror of the church in times of apostasy. It's the same thing. It's us. We're always fighting against the ever-present enemies. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Or if it's not the world, the flesh, and the devil, it's the world and the flesh. And if it's really not the world, well, you just, you know, it's you. Everybody says, oh, the devil made me do it. I think, no, 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 I did that one. I wanted to do it, and I did it. Now, you know, i got to clean things up. Well, you know, more often than not, we're just, we're never able to gain and keep the victory. Isn't that true? You'll have good days. You'll have good periods. you walking with the Lord, witnessing, or I don't know what you, you know, you think, yeah, it's good, man. And then all of a sudden, bam, you're on the floor again, smitten like Israel. We have no victory in expanding the kingdom. We, we should say that one again, too. We have no victory, folks, in expanding the kingdom. Israel is getting their backside kicked by the enemies. The enemies are occupying the land that God gave them. And yet they're not expanding the kingdom, actually accomplishing the work and the mission that God gave them to do. No, we just sit and soak in the status quo of a stagnant faith, and we just go nowhere. We're defeated. We're beaten down, and we're controlled by our enemies instead of taking control of them. And I got a question. Why is that? Why? Why? Well, it is the problem. It. It. Okay? 
One of those phenomenons of the English language. It doesn't appear in my Spanish Bible. <laughs> but here it is, verse 3. Well, when the people were coming to the camp, okay, tail between the legs, oh, we just got beat up. The elders of Israel said, Wherefore hath the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? Let us fetch the ark of, God, ark of the covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us, that when it cometh among us, it may save us out of the hand of our enemies. Now, now I want you to look at the, the, the question, the first question they ask. What's the first question they ask? Folks, this just shows them they have absolutely no clue. Wherefore hath the Lord smitten us? Who did they just blame for their little chastisement? Well, they just blamed God for it. Well, I, I'm sorry. You know, God bless America. <laughs> Why would he? You know, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And they said, well, well, why did God do this to us? Wherefore hath the Lord smitten us? Are you, are you blind, stupid, and ignorant? Yes! Yes! I mean, God bless America. Seriously. Make, make a list for me, folks. Just make a list of the stupid things this country does. Abortion is legal. How many people do we kill every day? Ooh, we could just stop right there, couldn't we? Yeah. I, I, oh. Wherefore hath the Lord smitten us? That's about the dumbest thing I think I've heard anybody say. You know, we, why doesn't God bring revival? Uh, it's not God's fault, folks. It's not God's fault. It's ours. It's ours. And here's their problem. When it says later in that verse, they say, hey, let's bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us, that when it cometh among us, you ought to mark this, it may save us. Can it save you? It. What, what is it? I mean, what are we calling it? Is, yeah, was the Ark of the Covenant. Do we ever call people it? No, it's the table. It is a table. That's my brother. He is a he's, not an it, right? It. Their, their hope of salvation, it will save us. Their hope of deliverance, their hope of victory is in a thing. A thing. Oh, hope is salvation. Thing. It. What should it have been? He will save us. He will save us. It's not he. It's it. And, and I tell you what, we do, don't kid yourself. Don't, don't kid yourself. I've done it. You've done it. We all do it today. Oh, I'll go to church. Then I'll be okay with God. Then I'll get the victory over this mess that I've made. The church. It will save me. No, no. Hey, if I just get baptized, I'll be okay. And I'll get victory over this, this sin, this mess that I've made. Oh, if we just had a building. Bigger build, Better building. Building that didn't smell like, I don't know, right? If, oh, then our church would grow. Oh, if we just relocated our church to a better, more visible location, we'd see more fruit. Am I, am I, am I barking up your tree? Oh, if we just had better music, if we had drama, if we had dancing girls, if we had comfortable chairs, if we had a black ceiling and stage lighting, then we'd see the victory. Yeah. Do you think any of those things have anything to do with pleasing God or victory over sin? Do you think any of those things have anything to do with the work of God among us? Nothing. Folks are gimmicks. Gimmicks, when the people of God are not following God, Him, they put their hope in gimmicks. It, whatever it is, it's a thing. 
And God's people think it will save them and it will give them the victory they desire. And it could be a, it that's very important. Do you think, I mean, I don't know, at this time in the nation of Israel, on the face of this earth, was there a thing that was more important, more sacred, more holy than the Ark of the Covenant? No. Go talk to Uzzah and ask him, right? He, he touched the Ark, and God killed him, okay? It could be something very important. It could be very, very sacred. But when God's people have their trust and hope in a thing rather than in the person of God himself... Folks, there's never going to be any victory. None. None. And so look at verse 4. Because I want to tell you these gimmicks, they go hand in hand with carnal leadership. It says, So the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from thence the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts that dwelleth between the cherubims. And who brought it? Who brought the ark? The sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. You know, whenever you see a church or a ministry that's all wrapped up in programs, carnal, worldly ideas, and things, and stuff, and just, just it's, it's got to be something new every day, right? Rest assured, the leaders are not following God. And whenever you see leaders who are not following God, what can you expect? Gimmicks. Programs, carnal, worldly ideas things, stuff. It'll be it rather than God. One brings the other. Chicken before the egg, egg before the chicken. Doesn't matter, you get an egg and a chicken. Carnal leadership, gimmicks. And I'll tell you what, it brings a revival. Verse 5. We get a revival among God's people. When the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout. So the earth rang again. It was a revival so big the Philistines even figured it out. When the Philistines heard the noise of the, the shout, they said, What meaneth the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews? And they understood that the ark of the Lord was coming to the camp, and the Philistines, what? Were afraid, for they said, God is come into the camp. And they said, Woe unto us, for there hath not been such a thing heretofore. You know, so much of a revival this thing caused among God's people, even the Philistines saw it and were afraid. They thought, oh, man. You know, in the next verses they say, hey, quit yourselves like men and let's go fight. But, but it, it shook them. It shook them. You know, however, don't make the mistake of equating some emotional response to some new thing to God being present. This is not revival. Revival is not about you feeling good. Revival is not about you feeling positive about the outcome. This is simply heightened emotion among God's people in apostasy because they have some new gimmick that they think is going to bring them the victory. If you want to see some example of this live um, and right in front of your face, attend the One Thing Conference of IHOP. I think it's in January. They have thousands of kids and they pack out uh, that convention center downtown and they have music and preaching and it is a new thing each year. And man, they just, they just hype it up. They are still around. It's like that bad smell never goes away. You know, so hey, does it work? That's what, you know, hey, okay, they got the Ark of the Covenant. They got a new thing, new program. They got new padded pews. They got, I don't know, new pew Bibles. They've got a new building, a new location. They got a new logo. Whatever they got, it, it's going to save us, does it? Verse 10, Philistines fought, and Israel was smitten. They fled every man to his tent. There was very great slaughter, for there fell of Israel 30,000 footmen. The ark of God was taken, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were slain. 
um, just like the vast majority of churches today, smitten by the enemy, smitten by the world, the flesh, and the devil. Churches today, folks, churches today look more like the nations around them, the world, than they do the people of God. We have talked for so many years, decades, probably two or three generations now, about adapting to culture. It's like, I don't know why we didn't realize what that meant. Let's just get, let's be worldly. Uh, churches today look more like theaters and concert halls than they do godly separated places of worship. Churches today are organized and run more like Home Depot and Burger King than what God said in the New Testament. But what, you know, I, Titus 2.14 says, don't go there, it says that Christ, he gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity. That's pretty good, right? Just, just think about that. Christ redeemed you from all iniquity. He bought you back. He paid a price that you could never pay. Because if you have to pay the price for your own sin, that's eternity in hell. It's never paid. It's a debt that will never get paid. Christ paid all of that. That he might redeem us from all iniquity. And he did that that he might purify unto himself a peculiar people. I like that word. It's a people zealous of good works. Why, why would you want to look like the world and adapt to culture when Jesus wants you to be peculiar? Folks, we're defeated. The ark of God is taken. The leaders of God's people are removed. They're, they're dead. Um, you know, the, Eli dies over in verse 18. And then God pronounces Ichabod, verses 19 to 21. This is the context, verse 19, for Samuel 4, 19. After all this happens, his daughter-in-law, Phineas's wife, was with child near to be delivered. When she heard the tidings that the ark of God was taken, that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and travailed, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women stood by her and said unto her, Fear not, for thou hast born a son. And she answered not, neither did she regard it. She named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory is departed from Israel because the ark of God was taken, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory is departed from Israel, for the ark of God is taken. <clears throat> glory is departed, God is not there. That's where God's presence manifested itself in the midst of God's people. He's not there. He left their pe his people to their own desires. They're still there, like I said. Israel was still in the land. Churches are abundant in this land. It's all empty ritual and religion. It is an institutionalized church. If you want a transliteration or a translation or an interpretation of Ichabod, that's it. An institutionalized church. There's no power. There's no victory. The world runs most churches and not God. And so in verse 22, when she said, The glory is departed from Israel, for the ark of God is taken. Ichabod, I want to ask you, is that how you want to live? Is that how you want to finish your days on earth? I don't. We've got to jump over to chapter 7 to finish this up. So you guys know the story. You know, God sends uh, the, the ark back from the Philistines after he smites them with hemorrhoids and mice and all sorts of other fun stuff. And, and they send the ark of God back. And then in uh, chapter 7, we see it, you know, verse, verse 1. And the men of Kirjath-Jerim came, fetched up the ark of the Lord, and brought it into the house of Abinadab in the hill, and sanctified Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the Lord. So, okay. The Ark of God comes back to Israel. And 
you know, what I want to say in conclusion here is that there is a way out. You know, there is a way to victory. There is always a way to a different life. There, there is a way. But look at verse 2. <clears throat> and it came to pass while the ark of God, or while the ark abode in Kirjath-Jerim, that the time was long, for it was 20 years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Now, now wait a minute. You got this young boy, Samuel. He's different, right? Because he's in the Bible. He's in the Scripture. He doesn't let one word of God drop to the ground. And he's out preaching that word in Israel. Okay? And he preaches to all Israel. And Israel is defeated in battle. And Israel is defeated and, and, and the ark of God is taken. Ichabod is pronounced over them. God's presence is no longer with them. They're under the heavy hand of their enemies. They're, they're smitten. You know what Samuel's doing. What's Samuel doing? He's preaching the word, preaching the word. How many years, folks? 20 years. 20 years. That guy preached 20 years of languishing under the hand and direction of the world. 20 years. And finally, the Bible says, Israel lamented after the Lord. Yeah, I bet. I bet. And you know what I say? Me too. Me too. Well, what needs to be done? How do we fix this situation? Because I'm tired of it. I'm tired of languishing. And folks, it hasn't been 20 years. Okay? It hasn't. I mean, even if we go way back when, when the good old days. No, it hasn't been like this. It hasn't been. It's been enough. I've had enough. I, I'm done. Verse 3. Samuel, just like he does always, spake unto all the house of Israel, saying, If ye do return unto the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the strange gods and Ashtoreth, from among you. Prepare your hearts unto the Lord. Serve Him only and He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. There has to be a repentance, folks. There has to be an, an acknowledgement that we are wrong. And not, not, not we, not we collectively, not we, the editorial, we. No, you and me. You and me. Chris Bible Church. We have to admit we got some things going wrong. And if we lament, we would like some more, then, then there's three things we need to do. Put away your idols. Everything that you worship that is not God, put it away and get rid of it. Put away your idols. Number two, prepare your heart. Prepare your heart unto the Lord. Set your eyes and your affection upon God. Set your ambition after Him. Prepare your heart. And then serve God and serve Him only. Verse 4, we see that Israel does just that. The children of Israel did put away Balaam and Ashtoreth and served the Lord only. And Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray for you unto the Lord. And they gathered together to Mizpah and drew water, poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day, and, and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel in Mizpah. There has to be a repentance, folks. We have to recognize we have sinned against the Lord. We are not this shining example of faithfulness at the end of the church age. We're not. 
We're the Laodicean church and we are lukewarm. We, us in this room, us, me, you. We have to realize that, come to grips with that, and then repent. Verse 7, when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel were gathered together in Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines because they just got their backside kicked a lot over the last 20 years by these guys. And once they start getting right with the Lord, here comes the opposition. But verse 8, look at what the... See, you've got to change here. Look at what it says. The children of Israel said to Samuel, Cease not to cry unto the Lord our God for us, that He will save us out of the hand of the Philistines. Do you see the difference? It will save us? No, no, no. He will save us. You see, it requires that you place your faith and trust in Him, the person, God. He will save us. Not gimmicks, not programs, not things, not it, whatever it may be. God will save us. He will win the victory. It is about Him, 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 not it, Him. And if we do that, He will save us. Verse 9, Samuel took a sucking lamb, offered it for a burnt offering holy unto the Lord, and Samuel cried unto the Lord for Israel, and the Lord heard him. And as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew uh, near to battle against the Lord. But the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day upon the Philistines and discomfited them, and they were smitten before Israel. There you go. God will do the work. <clears throat> now, with our last five minutes, I want to show you the twin brother of Ichabod. Because Ichabod's got a twin brother. You see, the parallel between Israel and the church means that this guy Ichabod, there's got to be a parallel in the New Testament. Go over to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. <clears throat> Ichabod's twin brother in the New Testament is the church of Ephesus. Revelation 2, 1-7. Because look what it says in verse 5. Revelation 2, 5. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent. Do the first works or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place except thou repent. You know folks, God is still in the business of removing candlesticks. God is still in the business of removing candlesticks and writing Ichabod over the door of a church. He leaves the church to their own devices. He removes his glory. He removes the candlestick. He lets them just give themselves to the things that they trust and hope in, whatever those things are. Even good churches. This is a good church. He's talking to verses 1 to 3. You know it is. Under the church of, the, of Ephesus, write, these things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. He says, I know thy works. Thy labor, thy patience, how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne and hast patience for my name's sake, and hast labored and hast not feigned. They're, they're a good church. Nevertheless, verse 4, I have somewhat against thee, because why? You left your first love. You see, these are the institutionalized churches that just go through the motions of an empty religion. They're there. They may even be good churches. 
They're still in the land. They have their buildings. They have their programs, but they're powerless. They're dead. They're stagnant. They're hollow. They're lifeless. God has long since left them to their devices. The glory has departed. Ichabod, the candlestick, has been removed out of its place. So if you and I, like Israel, are lamenting after the Lord, if you're tired of that dead status quo, well, repent and return to the Lord. Return to your first love. Folks, it's, it's God. It's Jesus Christ. It's the person of God. Know God by learning of Him through your Bible and submitting to it, doing what it says. Reject the apostasy, reject the gimmicks, reject the status quo, reject the carnal, worldly, self-serving, contemporary leadership. Be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Set your eyes and affection on Him and seek Him. Walk after Him. Know Him so that you can make Him known. It's not, it's not difficult. We need to return to God, and that means we need to return to Scripture. And Scripture alone. I don't really care about people's ideas. What's the new and shiny idea this year? You know, what we need to do is find the man of God who is preaching the words of God and follow him. He will be different, but rest assured, he is there. God is faithful. And he has his faithful men in times of apostasy. And then we need to be faithful. We need to be zealous for God, so much so that we are a peculiar people. We need to trust him, hope in him, and not in an it. It's God. It's about the person of God. Know him. Or, option number two, stay put in our apathetic indifference. We can just wallow in the carnal, worldly activities of a powerless, defeated, stagnant, institutionalized churchianity that God has named Ichabod. So, I'll leave you with that. And what do you want to do? I know what I want to do. Well, what do you want to do with the time that we have left? Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for the time that we've had together. Thanks for spending your time listening to my podcast, Theology 101. You can find the rest of my studies in English out on my website, theology101.net. And if you'd like to contact me, there's a contact page on that website also. Remember, God expects us to be faithful. So learn the Bible and do what it tells you. And then come back for more Theology 101.